Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the life we have. Thank you for the hope that we have. And I thank you for the book of First Peter. I pray that even as we go into your word today, I pray there is clarity. I pray that questions are answered, doubts are dissolved. And I pray that the truth of your word shines bright in our hearts and that we're able to both apply and teach it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, we will. I, I will try my all my possible best to make sure. <laughs> all right. All right. Hi, everyone. Good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time you're listening to this. We're on the book of First Peter. We started last week. But before I start, I wanted to talk a bit about a few questions that came in from James, James 5, to be particular. Um, yes, I'm recording. I'm recording. Thank you. So James 5. So maybe you could quickly turn there. And for those who listened, which I guess is pretty much almost everyone, um, we so for instance, we started James 5, 1, with from one to six talking about the rich folks who oppressed the poor and how the the encouragement is the patient right that the lord is coming and how the the general response there to persecuted believers and all of that beyond the help that god does provide in the present right through maybe direct deliverance or comfort is the ultimate hope of salvation where God will bring justice on the world and so the, the question that was asked right and maybe it wasn't clear when I answered so I want to take that again is that oh so does that mean those rich people weren't believers and I said for the majority yes it, it's absurd to think of rich people oppressing the poor and they are still coming to church where the poor people are. So there is a sense in which, yes, for the majority of it, right, um, a lot of those people were not exactly Christians. However, I do not want you to think it's a yeah, it's a black and white situation that nobody that was rich and abusive was in was not in the church rather. There is a possibility that there could have been some in the church who placed value in their wealth. Who cheated their workers of their wages and were also in the church so james's warning would also apply or it would convict the ones in the church as well as comfort the poor people who were suffering um so yes i wasn't given at least if anyone thought i was i never gave a this or that scenario where it's either they are in the church or they are not in the church these are human beings real life people in an audience we can't account for all of them but there is a possibility because they met in the open right so anyone could literally be in the audience so yes there could be rich unjust rich people in the audience and that would apply to them but for the vast majority um the rich were usually not christians especially at that point in time um, so that's the first thing i wanted to clarify the second question was about the um the later parts uh james 5 verse 14 to 16 talking about when a person is sick call for the elders of the church they'll pray for him and the prayer of faith will save the sick and if he has committed any sins he will be forgiven now 
Um, I didn't talk much on this because I did not want to spend a lot of time on it. And that's the question that does that mean that the person was sick because he sinned? And you can look at this in two ways, right? You can look at this in two ways. The first question usually is that does that mean God was punishing the believer's sin with sickness? Um, I'm not going to talk much about that until we get to 1 Corinthians. Or for for the sake of just today's recording, I do not lean towards that that um, idea of God making believers sick um, because they they in a sense to to punish them for what they did. We'll talk more about that, but I don't lean towards that at least pretty much for 99% of the time. But is there a sense in which sickness could be could be attributed to sin? Of course. Of course, right? You read the book of Romans. There is a sense in which, because of just the way God has ordered the world, and of course the world is falling and there is sin in the world and all that, but at least there is a sense, and which is why the book of Proverbs was written. There is a sense in which if you do good things, good things should, (laughs) should, right? Emphasis on should happen. And if you do bad, bad things should happen. And so there is a sense in which for a person who continuously lives in sin, the consequences of his actions, even in this world, in a sense, is the judgment of God because of the way he has structured the world. Does that make sense? Let me let me give let me give an example. So Paul uses the in fact, before I go to Paul, um, if someone who is sexually promiscuous, right, would get an STD at maybe he gets an STD at some point in time. It doesn't mean God necessarily sent an STD to teach him to stop being sexually promiscuous, but it's just that. Because of his lifestyle, he that happened. He felt he now he's probably sick. He's going to be on medication for the rest of his life. So in that sense, a sinful lifestyle directly led to sickness. Paul Paul uses the same um, train of thought in Romans 1:18 that we've talked about a lot, where it says that they give them God gave them up to themselves and they went deeper and deeper into immorality. And then it says. Um, Um, Yes, in verse 27, it says, Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Right? And this might not be a direct sense of, oh, God is punishing them for what they did, but that there is a natural consequence of, even in homosexual lifestyle, you look at it even statistically, there are more um, sexually transmitted diseases, more emotional trauma amongst that kind of of, of community as opposed to heterosexual one. Um, maybe my podcast will get cancelled after today for all I've just said. But maybe we say agenda was agenda. We'll create our Christian podcast <laughs> platform. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, so. Uh, there is a sense in which, so for instance, someone who steals or someone who cheats all through school and then he doesn't really learn anything and he, he goes to an interview and he fails, right? God necessarily, God didn't necessarily make him fail that interview. It's just the consequence of a sinful life. Or another instance, someone who stole all his life and at the end of the day he was caught and he loses everything. God didn't necessarily punish him directly. But the outcome of his actions led to that event. So there is a sense in which for even the people here where it says if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It might not have been that, oh, God actively 
punished them for what they did wrong. But it's possible that their sickness could be tied to a sinful lifestyle. I mean, you 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 give yourself to drinking, right? Which the Bible or which the church advised against. You get you get liver problems at some point or smoking, right? You 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 see that natural cause and effect. Um, a a a a um, a wasteful life would ultimately lead to painful consequences down the line. You're you're a selfish person. You would end up hurting um, the people closest to you. You don't have um, friends or loved ones anymore. That kind of thing. We see that the way the world already is structured, um, evil tends to be rewarded with evil. And of course, that might not always be the case, um, which is why proverbs might not always apply. Um, Proverbs is an idealistic world, but you see um, in Psalms, I believe, 73, the guy was complaining that God, how far? The wicked are prospering and they seem to prosper till they die. What's going on? But I just wanted to point that out that, yes, um, even in James, right, the 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 sickness may have been caused by um, sinful behavior, but it doesn't, it doesn't automatically follow that God was punishing the sick person because they sinned. We're going to talk more about that when we get to... 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to talk on the issue of sickness and judgment and all of that. But I just wanted to point that out because some people are that, oh, are you saying that it has nothing to do with his sin? And I'm like, no, that's not what I said. But yeah, I hope that makes sense. Thumbs up. Let's let's go back to 1 Peter. But hope those two points made sense. Thumbs up. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. So, 1 Peter 1. Last week, we, we talked a bit about the idea of sovereignty and, and um, election and foreknowledge. And it was brief, but the, the point is we look to Scripture, and I think this is one of the most consoling parts of Scripture. And I think I said this last time, that first of all, we identify what we can from Scripture. We might not be able to understand it all yet, but at least affirm what Scripture says. So the Bible lets us the Bible clearly teaches about a triune God. A, a, um, God revealed in the Father, God the Son, or the Word, and the Spirit of God. And there is, a, there seems to be a sense of distinction, but yet a sense of divinity to all of them. You might not be able to understand or teach a sermon on the Trinity, but at least affirm what the Bible says, right? You, do, you don't... You don't um, Thank God that when you get to, when you, at the end of your life, God is not going to ask you, ah, did you understand what makes me three in one? And like, ah, God, isn't that clear? Say, ah, you're not safe. No, that's not what's going to happen. It's the same thing with sovereignty and free will. Beyond all the many words I said last week, at least we can, both, we can all agree, or we should all agree from Scripture, that God is sovereign and man has free will. And I said that last week, that don't add the, add the, um, because you want to push a theological agenda or because you identify with a theological position, don't, don't teach anything that would either diminish the sovereignty of God or diminish the free will of man. Anything we say to be true must uphold both facts, that man has free will and God is sovereign. And I tried to reconcile that last week by explaining how God in his sovereignty and God, knowing all, right, is able to account for even the free will of man and use that to accomplish his purpose. And the best analogy I could think of, and of course, like all analogies, it might not be perfect, is playing a chess game with someone that you know every single move they're going to play. In fact, you know what they're going to do if you make a certain move. You will always win, right? You would always win that, that chess 
bored because you can't predict everything that would happen um which is why yeah so that's kind of the idea so god's sovereign plan in which oh i want a people in christ um will be accomplished regardless of the free will of man in fact it would so happen that god would use because in the same way in a chess game you would use the moves of the player to win the game god would use the free will that we we have or that he has given us for instance we see that in the crucifixion god did not put it in anyone's heart to kill jesus he simply gave Jesus over to the evil in the world, and evil did its thing. Um, its thing, and God used it for His salvation plan. So that was just a bit. Again, if you if if you have questions, listen to what we talked about last week, or please or message me privately. I could spend an hour, <laughs> I hope, explaining it to you personally. Or you could hold on till we get to Romans eight, nine, ten, and eleven. By the grace of God, I'll do justice to that topic then. And then we moved on to cool stuff, right? We're all excited last week. We started to talk about the hope that we have as believers. We talked about the living hope, incorruptible, undefiled. We talked about the fact that we rejoice in the light of that hope. Yeah, Bookie is still excited from last week. That is good, right? And that's the point of First Peter, that we rejoice in the hope that is to come. And that hope is is what strengthens us even in the face of trials now because we know and i love the analogy just like gold and like we've talked about in so many parts of the bible now hebrews james um well now we're talking about it in first peter the bible it it's it's it the way a pastor said it said that the new testament more than anything prepares us for suffering and it's ironic that the church or it seems it seems as though many many christian communities have thrown that out of the window assuming that as a believer you will not face hard times meanwhile a big part of the letters were written to help us know what to how to respond in hard times but anyways it is well but yeah it tells us that just like gold that is tested by fire so also our faith when we are found to stand, even in the face of persecution. I mean, that doesn't even really apply to many of us here. I don't know of anyone that has been, they pointed a gun to your head because you're a believer. Although, anyways, anyways, yeah. But yeah, so there is a sense in, in which there is a hope we have, and it's a hope we rejoice in. And it's that hope that keeps us going in both the good times. Remember James, right? In both the good times and the bad times. We're able to rejoice in the good things of life. We're able to, to, to stay strong in the bad times of life because that there, there is something that is bigger than both the good that this life has to offer and the bad that the sinful world may throw at us, right? There is a hope that is, that is bigger, better, brighter than both of them. So that's part of what we talked about last week. And then the, the highlight was 1 Peter 1 verse 8. Whom having not seen, we love. And though now we don't see him, yet we believe. And we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Hallelujah. So now we're going to start from where we stopped. First Peter 1 verse 10. And I will do all in my power. <laughs> Let me not say that. But hopefully we're able to finish this chapter today. We should be. I, I hope so. So let's turn your Bibles, get your notes out. First Peter 1 verse 10. 10 let us let us go back into it so it says talking about the salvation now right it says receiving the end of your faith 
the salvation of your souls. It says, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. It is searching what or what manner of time the Spirit in Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Again, with Peter, we see a lot packed into short sentences. And that makes my job a lot harder because I have to break down every single phrase. But let's look at what he's, let's look at what he's saying. He's saying that concerning this salvation, that was what has been prophesied. And now this comes to, this This refers to how we understand the Bible. What I'm going to do, in fact, let me write that down. I'm going to upload a teaching I did in 2019. It's called Honor for the Written Word. I think Miracle might be the only person that might have heard that because she was probably there. And I pretty much just talked about how we should look at the Bible as a whole. I'm going to try to upload that because it, it, a lot of things I want to say, I talked about it much more in that teaching. So it's I'll make, make it a bonus track. So probably before next week, if you can, listen to that teaching as well. But the idea there is that, and we should know this already, when you look at the Bible, you are seeing one story. One story. And like Peter is saying, all that the prophets prophesied, right, was talking about the salvation, the work of Christ. He summarizes it as the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Talking about the incarnation, the death, the crucifixion, and then the glories that to follow into the resurrection and the, and the ascension. We see Jesus doing the same thing in Luke 24. Let's turn there quickly. Luke 24. Luke 24, um, let, let's start from verse, which one do I want to read first? Verse 25, right? These are the people that were walking on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus said, oh foolish ones, slow of hearts to do what? To believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Talking about what? The sufferings and the, the glory that should follow. It says, ought not Christ to have what? Suffered these things and to enter into his glory. The same words, the sufferings of Christ, the glory that should fall. And it says what? Beginning at Moses, that's Genesis, uh, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, pretty much the Old Testament, the scriptures. He said he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning who? Concerning me? No. Concerning himself. Concerning himself. In the recording I'm going to upload, I talked a bit about the word um, expound, diamenuel. It means to, 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 to interpret something thoroughly. It's the word dia, meaning through like diameter. And then no, the mind, to, to really... Anyways, listen to that recording. I don't want to do all that today. <laughs> but he pretty much went through the scriptures. And you can imagine how that Bible study would have been as they were walking. You say, remember when Moses did this? Oh, it was me. Remember when Joshua did this? Oh, it was me. Remember when this and this happened? Remember when God said this to David? It was me. Remember when Isaiah said this? It was me. He did the same thing to his apostles a few verses down, right? It says in verse um, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, 
that these things, that all of these things must be fulfilled, which are written where? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Concerning who? Concerning me, Jesus, right? And again, he says what? He opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures. And it's sad because what we see today, especially with a lot of string theologies, is literally this verse. People do not understand the scriptures. What will it mean then to say you understand the scriptures is that you are able to trace the narrative of Christ from Genesis to Malachi. That is what it means to be able to understand the scriptures. And look at what he said in verse 46. It says, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Now, the funny thing is, there is no verse in the Old Testament that says it is necessary for the Christ to suffer right? and, that, um, and that remission of sins should be preached in his name. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the sum total, Jesus' summary, when you know when you do project and there's an abstract, that, or you, if you read the abstract, you should be able to understand chapter 1 to 5. Jesus' abstract of the Old Testament is what? It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's the summary of the Old Testament. That's why Paul would say to Timothy, from a child you have known what? The Holy Scriptures, which are able, which have the ability to make you wise unto salvation. Unto salvation. The point of the Old Testament is the same as the point of the New. It's revealing God's salvation plan in Christ. And if you've gone through the Old Testament and that's not where you arrive at, then you have not. Just like the disciples, just like the Pharisees, you need the understanding to be open so that you may comprehend the scriptures. And we're going to see that in first, we're going to go into first Peter. So we've seen that in a bit. We looked at Galatians and you see Paul's commentary, Paul bringing in Genesis, Paul bringing in all these verses, talking, um, talking about how the gospel was preached to Abraham. And you're like, I never, I never saw it that way. But that is what it means to, to study the Old Testament in the light of Christ. You are able to see the story. You're able to see God's sovereign plan from, from the foundation of the world, leading from Adam into Noah, into Moses, into Abraham. And we can spend time on each and each, each one of these people, whether it's, whether it's Noah, we're going to see something like that, whether it's um, David, whether it's Moses, whether it's Abraham, whether it's, I don't know who else, <laughs> Solomon, whether it's Jonah, all of these narratives, and you see that thread weaving through, even the Psalms, you see the same thread, Isaiah, um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the same thread, that indeed God is going to redeem humanity through a perfect man, the man Jesus. This would be someone who God would hand over to the evil of this world. From Genesis, Genesis, we saw it, he would bruise the serpent's head and it would, the serpent would bruise his heel, right? The suffering of Christ and the glory that should follow. Amen. So that is how to handle the Old Testament. It is 
not just a book of Bible stories. It's not just a book of David versus Goliath or Daniel in the lion's den. And while there are lessons to learn from abstracting stories, a better way to read will be to see the story of Christ revealed through all of Scripture. Amen. And that's what he said. He said that the prophets, they inquired and they searched what manner of time the spirit in them was indicating when he testified of this. He says in verse 12, to them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, meaning we that have come post Christ, they were ministering these things too, which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. I love this. I love this verse so much. Like the idea there is that even the angels are learning about the goodness, the mercy, and the wisdom of God in the gospel by watching it play out. A lot of times we don't remember that angels are not omniscient, right? They are they are created beings just like us. And they are seeing the gospel and they're like, even then they're like, ah, God. So this is what you had in mind. And that's why Paul would say in Ephesians that God in the ages to come will make known. The, the riches of his kindness and his goodness to, towards us. We've literally become, the, think of it, it's like a theater. We've become the spectacle of all of creation, that everything looks at us and sees the wisdom and the goodness of God. And that's why David would reflect on this and say, what is man? Why, why have we received this special privilege? Even angels do not have that. What we've been called into in Christ even angels know. And that's why sometimes you see Paul saying things like, oh, because of the angels. We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians. But that's the idea. That even, he says these things, even the angels desire to look into that. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And I want you to not, it's still the same thought of rejoicing in the hope. Don't let this get common. Don't let this become commonplace in your life. That you realize that in, in Christ, you've been given the greatest honor ascribed to any creation God has ever made. In Christ, you have become the demonstration of God's goodness. If, 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 the, if anyone should ask God, are you a good God? You say, look at my children. Are you kind? Look at those in Christ. Are you merciful? Look at those in Christ. Are you wise? Look at those in Christ. You've become God's bragging rights. Last night, a few of us were talking about how um, parents like to brag about their kids. Ah, my kid, my son is doing well. My daughter is doing well. All of that. The same way, God, His glory is revealed in what He has done for us in Christ. And it's amazing to think about. It's amazing to think about. Amen. All right, so now we go into the implication. It says what? Verse 13. Therefore... Again, because of the hope that you have, because of all you've received, because of, of, of this, this thing you are, you are, this marvelous thing you're anticipating, gird up the loins of your mind. Whenever I read that, I think of how ladies tie a wrapper. <laughs> I've seen my mom tie, you wrap it around and then you adjust it and pull it up properly. <laughs> That's literally the idea. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the idea there is simple. Because you have a hope ahead, don't lose focus. Don't lose focus. When it talks about being sober, 
a lot of times, what, what does sobriety usually refer to? The, the, the ability to think clearly. A drunken man can't focus. He can't even walk in a straight line. A sober man can. He can think clearly. He can make decisions rationally. And that's, it's the same idea. Get up the loins of your mind. Don't, don't let it just fall to the ground. Pick it up, right? Be sober. And it's not, it love that I'm saying this so that you won't think sobriety is about, uh, I'm sober, I'm serious-minded, I'm, I'm, I'm not not excited i'm not happy no it's talking about being able you're not losing sight you're not losing focus you're not distracted you are able to focus clearly on the goal and the reason he says this is because many things will try to distract us or make us drunk right um career could drunk in a man wealth could drunk in a man Poverty could drunk in a man. I don't want to make it look like it's just one side. Poverty could drunk in a person, right? Anything, right? Even, even, um, oh, I'm, I'm a mother and that's all. You, you forget that you're first a child of God. Oh, I'm a wife. I'm a husband. You forget that you're first a child of God. And that's the idea that be sober and rest your hope fully on the grace of that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. And so it's a strong emphasis to have your mind constantly flooded with all that God has done. And it would have a practical implication on how you live your lives today. And that's what we've always seen all through scripture. You know what God has done and we see the practical application in our lives on a day-to-day basis that yes, I have a career. Yes, I have friends. Yes, I have family. Yes, I have things I'm doing right now. But it it never gets to the point where it blinds my mind from what I have in Christ. Amen. And then it says, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your as in your ignorance, says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in conduct. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. A lot of people have assumed this to now mean that until you attain perfection in conduct, you are not truly saved. And let me just talk a bit about that. So, for instance, I've talked to some people and they're like, ah, if there's anything you have done wrong and Christ is revealed or Christ returns, you are screwed. And the best way to, 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 to do this, once again, is by asking questions. One of which, how I how I do this is I ask them that, so are you saying that right now you are, or better still, are there things that you were doing last year that now you've stopped? The answer is most likely yes, if they are growing spiritually. Are there things that you are doing now that you won't be doing next year because you've grown in Christ? The answer again will be yes. So you are saying that even right now you are not perfect. The answer should be yes. How then do you expect to be saved? It's very hypocritical. Do you see that? Um, Another way to, I mean, that's pretty much just make it clear that even for those people that say, ah, be holy for his holy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. I'm not as holy as they think, (laughs) in quotes, right? They still make mistakes. They still still have flaws, right? I I remember... um, um, a pastor gave an analogy that it, it, it was like a pastor's comment. I was like, yes, you know, I've attained that state now. I no longer sin, which in itself is a sin because you are lying. <laughs> you are lying and you're proud. 
And I think they said the next day they were having breakfast and a pastor friend on the table literally just walked up to him and poured milk on him. <laughs> Please don't do that to your friends to prove that point. And then this pastor got angry and was shouting. And I said, good to know that you are still able to sin. And then he went back to his seat and continued eating. The idea there is that <laughs> as long as we're in this flesh, right, we are not in that sense perfect. If not, we won't have needed the glorified body, right? So when we read, be holy for I'm holy, it says, <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> when it says, be holy for I am holy, what then is it saying? It's the same thing we've always said. As a believer, first of all, and I, I don't want you to then fall into the other extreme because usually there's the extreme of, oh, if I'm not perfectly in my day-to-day conduct, living like Christ, I'm screwed. There's also the other extreme that, ah, grace grace covers it all. So I can't, well, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And you, you become lenient on your conduct. And I said this last week that, I don't know if it was last week, that nothing in Christianity reduces the gravity of sin. What we just have is something greater, the love of God or the blood of Jesus, the death of Christ that covers but it doesn't mean that sin becomes less sin, sinful because you are a Christian. It doesn't mean that a lie becomes less evil to God because you are a Christian. And it should be. The whole point of growing in Christ is that sin becomes as disgusting to you as it is to God. So this is not about saying, ah, I lied today, but you know, I'm just a man. Those days happen. No, that's not what I'm saying. And that's what this verse is saying, that every believer should strive to be holy in conduct. However, the roles have been reversed. We are holy, and so we can be holy. So the same way God is holy and God does holy things, we are holy just like our Father, and we should live in holiness. So for the people, the people in Israel, in Leviticus 11 verse 44, Leviticus 11 verse 44, which Paul is, sorry, Peter is quoting, for them, when they read, be holy for I am holy, it was, a, it was a matter of conduct and there was nothing in them to make it possible. And that's why they kept on failing. That's why they would keep offering sacrifices. For you in Christ, and I told you that, that the amazing thing about Christianity is that everything we are instructed to do, we've been empowered to do. Everything we are instructed to do in scripture, the ability to get it done has been placed within us. And so when we see prayer without season, it's because we have a spirit, we have the spirit of God that longs to pray. Our spirit man has been born again. We long to pray. When you see be holy, for I am holy, it is because we can walk in holiness. And it should be your desire that as a believer, I walk in my nature. It goes on, it says, and if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here. I love how he uses it as if it's like vacation, Airbnb. During the time of your stay here, conduct yourselves in fear. Of course, like reverence, right? Again, we see the reference to God being a faithful judge. Jude, sorry, not Jude. James uses that same analogy a lot, right? That remember, you're going to be judged. So, like I said, nothing in the grace of God allows for a relaxed view on sin. It says, knowing that you were not. So, the ability, once again, to, to live in the way God expects, to conduct yourselves in the fear of God, is tied to the fact that what we know something. 
We've looked at that, right? The ability to rejoice even in hard times is because we know something. The same with the ability to live for God is because we know something. What do we know in verse 18? That we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, right? From our aimless conduct, rather with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spots. And that's the motivation. The reason I live the way God wants me to is because I know that I have been bought. So Peter is even using the analogy that God has bought you, (laughs) right? And he says it's not with silver or gold. It's not with iPhone. They didn't use iPhone to blind your eye. No, it is with his death. The death of Jesus. And that's why Paul would say it in 1 Corinthians, right? In 5, um, in, in when he says, Know ye not that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. How would you, um, know ye not that Christ has purchased, you are, you are literally, you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. So how then would you take that and join with it? That was for Paul in Corinthians. But it's the same motivation here. You go out every day knowing that God owns you. And that's why Paul said we're debtors, not to sin, but to righteousness. Because literally, Christ has paid the price. That is what redemption means. It literally means to pay a price. He bought us from our slavery and set us free. But he says we're not free to just do whatever we want. We're free to live for him. It says he indeed was foreordained from before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Again, we see the idea of God's Knowledge. We see the idea of God's sovereignty, how Jesus was not an afterthought. God did not look at Adam and say, Adam, you have messed everything up. You shall you have spot, you should have just not messed up, and everything would have been fine. That's not what God is thinking. No, Christ was always, Christ was always the plan. It says, Who through him believe in God? So again, we see the idea of the Trinity, right? Who through Jesus <laughs> believe in the Father? Right? It says, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth to the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So again, Peter is talking about the implications of what does it mean to have a living hope? What does it mean to have been bought with the blood of Jesus? It says that what? Love one another fervently. I like it. I, I really like it. The word fervent there just means without season. Always love one another. Why? It says you have purified your souls. So again, we see that idea, be holy for I am holy. But it already tells you that your souls have been purified. So you are holy, actually. This is talking about applying it to conduct. It says you have been purified by obeying the truth in the spirit. Therefore, love one another. And that's why John would write that anyone who doesn't love or hates his brother is in darkness even until now because the seed of God in us only stirs up love. It says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. The same thing James said in James 1, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. That's exactly James 1.18. Of his own will begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creatures, right? So the seed of God in us is the word of God, it's the gospel revealed by the Spirit of God that now indwells us. And that's what it means to be born again. You have the Spirit of God living in you and it is eternal. 
and so therefore you will like you would live forever it is because all flesh is grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass the grass withers and the flower falls away but the word of the lord endures forever now this is the word which was preached to you again it's the same idea right anything human is going to fade away your looks fade away your wealth fade away <laughs> right this planet fade away <laughs> so the idea there is that only that is true now i won't always look this fine and fresh glory to god but would we'll, we'll age like fine wine amen <laughs> but it says the word of god endures forever we saw a similar thing in hebrews if you guys remember hebrews right since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken right there will be a shaking of everything else and only that which is established on the kingdom of god will stand which is salvation and what christ is what god is establishing in christ so that's the idea it's still talking about the living hope that what we have in christ is something that transcends anything we see in this world and as a result the first thing he said was what it should inform the way you live meaning you should be sober you shouldn't be chasing anything that would drunk you or make you drunk <laughs> drunken i know doubt i don't know the i don't know the um the tense to use but anything that will make you drunk right i you can help me <laughs> and so whether that's legitimate things or like in verse 14 whether that's the things we used to enjoy when we were in the world this is it, it makes no sense why because we have a hope not only that we should live for god and i i love the fact that christianity is not about oh stop doing this stop doing that no a lot of times we 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 tend to camp around oh i need to stop this i need to stop that but no the the there is a bigger emphasis and it's not just about i don't live for sin it's now that oh i live for god I live for God. Intoxicates. Thank you. But isn't there a way to use drunk in that sentence? There should be. But anyways, I don't know. I live for God. So it's kind of the same way even psychologists will tell you that oh if you want to stop a bad habit, it's not enough to just start saying oh today I won't do this. Today I won't do that. No. Try to fix your mind on something to replace that habit. And it's the same principle in Christ. It's not about oh I don't lie anymore. I don't steal anymore. No, it's now that I tell the truth. I give I am generous. I love people. It's more than oh, I don't hate. No, I love people. I I I I live my life to the glory and the service of God. I do this, I do that. So, don't just see your Christian walk as oh, I don't do this anymore. I don't do that. But go up, go, up, come up higher. So, I do this. I'm generous. I'm kind. I'm loving. I'm gentle. I'm focused. I'm sober. Right? I'm sober. <laughs> I'm holy. both in identity and in conduct. I mean it goes on to talk about how we both the blood of Christ and we have the word of God which endures forever. So now let's go into chapter 2. I'll probably stop at no I'm looking at the time. I'm going to stop at probably verse 12. So now it goes on and says therefore again based on everything we've talked about laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy all evil speaking so yes there are things to put down now it's going to tell you what to pick up it says as newborn babies or as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow 
thereby. And the same way James in James 1, if you remember, after saying that we've been born and the seed of God is in us, what does he now say? He says, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. That's in James. Peter does the same thing. Desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And of course, we've talked about the idea that this is not saying that you are a baby and in Christ, so, so you are immature and all of that. No, it's simply saying the same way babies crave milk is the same way you should crave the word of God. And I love the word pure milk because it's the word adolos in the Greek, pure. And it simply means pure, right? Unadulterated, undeceitful, sincere. It is, it, it, there is no impurity in it. And in our day, it is so important we learn to receive the pure milk of the word. Because we live in a time where people have opinions. People would add stuff to the Bible. And it is, it is, you are corrupting the word. It's not necessary. Like we talked about last night, there are people who can justify anything from scripture. When we go to the word of God, it is to get the pure milk of the word. Don't, don't, uh, we don't want to hear what you think. We don't want to hear how it looks to you. <laughs> Give us the raw word like a sword. <laughs> Give us the pure milk of the word of God. Amen. It says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And for some weird reason, this is one of my most favorite, this is one of my favorite verses rather in all the Bible. I don't know why. First Peter 2 verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So first of all, there's a sense in which you've tasted and you can't get enough. So you're, you're just craving, craving for the word of God. And we should reflect on that in our lives. Do we desire the word of God in that to that intensity? Do we desire the word of God to that intensity? But more than that, Peter is not just writing. As we're going to see in pretty much everything from now to verse 12, he's not just writing. He's reflecting on verses of scripture. And where is this verse taken from? Psalm 34 verse 8. Let's go there. Psalm 34 verse 8. Remember again, we're talking about, he has talked about how to read the Bible or these are the things the prophets had spoken about. So here again, David, no surprises. Psalm 34 verse 8, what does it say? It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts him. And Peter comes a few hundred years down the line and saying, Indeed, we in Christ, we've tasted that the Lord is good. We've tasted that the Lord is good. And it's, I don't know, I don't know why. I don't know, it's maybe one of those verses that you just, just like for some reason. I really like this verse because it's the idea that in Christ, I have tasted something that I can't get enough of. I've seen the goodness of God in salvation that all the days of my life, I'm just drinking. I just I just want more. I just want more. I just want to know more. I just want to learn more. I just want to thank God more. I just want to stay in that glory more. That, oh my God, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that is our testimony. We all in Christ have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So it's a general principle. If you truly have been saved, that experience should leave you craving more and more and more of God. It says coming to him as to a living stone, 
rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Again, Peter is not just talking. He's quoting Old Testament. Where is he quoting? Let's go to Isaiah 28 verse 16. <clears throat> Isaiah 28 verse 16. It says what? Therefore, thus says the Lord of, um, says the Lord God, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. He says the same of David again, echoes. David was a man of God. Though. Psalm 118 verse 22. Psalm 118 verse 22. Let's start from verse 21. In fact, the entire psalm is, is messianic, but anyways, let's not do that today. It says, <clears throat> this is the, um, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So, of course, there is a sense, okay, yeah, so we see Peter reflecting in, in, in chapter 2, and he said, we've come to him as to a living stone, right, as to a living stone. So, the idea there, again, when you think of Jerusalem and the temple, and you see, oh, it had beautiful precious stones for foundations you see in revelations the new temple or oh, there are 12 layers of stones symbolizing the 12 apostles the 12 tribes and all those fancy symbolism and it says that it's a living stone so the same way again the temple was made up of gold and costly stones the true temple of god is made out of this time not stones but humans or people that are alive right People, Christ being the cornerstone and we in Christ as, as the building blocks where God now resides. And that's what he says in verse 5, right? That we also, we are also living stones. So again, it's the idea of um, the temple of God. Where does God live? God lives in the believer. Where, where, where is the house where God resides? It is in the church and not the building down the road not where you go on Sunday. It is in the heart of every single one of us. So it says we've come to Christ as to a living stone, and we also, we've been made living stones. It says we have been built up a spiritual house. Remember Hebrews 2, that the builder of the house, is, Moses was the servant in the house, but the, um, God was the builder of the house. And we've talked about all of that, how Christ is greater than Moses, because even Moses is a living stone in the house that God built that Christ becomes Lord of. Anyways, that's uh, going back in time. But it says, we as living stones, we are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So again, he's using temple imagery, right? Um, Peter being a Jew and Jews being in the audience would understand perfectly well what this is all about. So, Christ is the cornerstone. We have been made as building blocks of the house of God, where God now resides. But much more than that, what happens in a temple? Priests offer sacrifices to mediate between God and man. And it's the same way. It says we also, we have become the priesthood of God. We've become the priesthood of God and we are now offering sacrifices. We looked at this at length in Hebrews, where I did a parallel between 
the sacrifices of the Levitical system and the sacrifices in Christ. And how that we do not offer, of course, we don't offer um, sin offerings and all of that. Christ has done that. But we saw how, for instance, Romans 12, 1, present yourselves a living sacrifice. We looked at Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise. We looked at Hebrews 13, verse 6. Doing good to, to others and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And so we see that what is the sacrifice we offer to God today? Christian conduct, right? Your day to day. That's why Paul summarized this. I like the way the message, that's one verse I actually like the way the message puts it. It's taking your everyday life, your eating, your drink, everything, just present it to God. And that's the idea that as priests of God, we are continually offering up sacrifices, whether it's in times of singing and worship and praise, whether it's in time we do good, you are driving down the street and you're able to give to someone who needs, whether it's in sharing the gospel, whether it's in, I don't know, being a good um, a good friend, a good spouse, a good, a good worker, we are offering up sacrifices. And it's that mentality that everything I do is responding to the goodness of God in worship. Because that's the whole idea of sacrifices, right? They said, oh, you kill the lamb and the smoke rose up like incense and with like a sweet smelling aroma before the presence of God. It's the same idea that God looks at you, his, his daughter, his son, his child, and is like, wow, wow. You do go and go like, yes, that's my, that's my child. Those are the sacrifices in which God is well pleased. And it says, therefore, it is also contained in scripture. Behold, I lay. So now he's quoting it verbatim. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. And he who believes in him will not be put to shame. He says, therefore, to you who believe, he's precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So he literally, he literally quotes um, both both verses, Isaiah and Psalm. Just reflected on it, and then he quoted verbatim in the next few verses, right? That Jesus being the cornerstone, kind of like that pillar on which everything stands. If you reject him, you have no building. If you are in him, you are part of God's building. And it says that a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, I'm going to talk about this now. It says they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. And the idea there is simple. If God has made it such that there will not be salvation outside Christ, what does that mean for those who reject Christ? They've missed out on salvation, right? So that's kind of what he's talking about, that this, because of the, the way in which God has sovereignly decided to save humanity, the Pharisees and many more that reject Christ, to them, Christ has become the stone of stumbling. So it's one of two things, right? You can't get away from it. It's either Christ becomes the cornerstone on which you are built, or Christ becomes the very stumbling stone on which you will trip. <laughs> it's one. He will, Christ will always be in the way. <laughs> you, either, you either join his side or you stand against him and suffer the consequences in quotes, right? So that's the idea. That to, to the people who believe, he's our precious cornerstone. But to those who are disobedient, he becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It says they stumble being disobedient. So you are rejecting God's ultimate plan. And 
let's go a bit into small um, apologetics for instance sometimes people would ask that uh, why is god like this why is christ the only way it, it's, it's too it's too narrow it's not fair why is it just jesus why can't it be other things and i had an analogy once and it blew my mind nobody imagine if god forbid you have a terminal illness and the doctor says this this um, vaccine or this drug is the only thing that can cure you does anyone start say ah uh-uh. why is it just one drug why can't there be more drugs doctor i don't want <laughs> i don't want this drug find another drug for me i don't like the flavor it's chocolate i, I want strawberry <laughs> right no one says that when you're face to face with an illness you have a terminal illness you think you're going to die tomorrow this this syringe will save your life you're grateful that at least there is something that can save me and so we see it that it is actually dishonesty don't be tricked or don't feel pressured when people say ah why is it only jesus is not fair <laughs> because first of all the right perspective is even gratitude that there even is in the mercy of god a way for salvation but much more than that people that say that it's not really that um, they they think that no they still want to um they don't want to submit to god's sovereign um, to to god's goodness in christ that's what is happening most times they don't <laughs> exactly they don't want they still it's 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 that sense in which for many people who don't believe in god they don't believe in god because they don't want to believe in god like they cannot deal with the idea that there is a god who watches their every move because they enjoy self accountability and the idea of now i have to live in a certain way because i was created with a purpose i don't want that so let me just do what i want and i don't want to believe there is someone up there it's the same thing with christ when you say ah but i'm presenting a way through which you will be saved and like ah why why jesus can can that be it's because again the demands of christ <laughs> for them are too much they've just not come to a point where they've seen sin for what it really is and that's where the place of repentance comes right metanoia to change your mind to change your mind until a person changes their mind about sin they cannot receive the sacrifice of Christ until a person gets to a point where they realize that indeed i am deservedly going to face the wrath of god they will not receive salvation another analogy i heard was by paul washer and he's like if i dangle a bunch of keys at you you're going to be like okay what's wrong with you get out that's annoying but if you go into a prison that prison hall where at the entrance you just dangle the keys everyone will wake up if I, even if you are sleeping you will wake up you hold the door like oh who is getting out who is going why because they are very aware of the fact that they are in chains and the sound of a key is the sound of freedom it's the same thing when we present the gospel until people get to a point where they realize that they are sinners and that Jesus the the message of the gospel becomes the message of salvation it actually becomes good news they would not submit to Christ and that's the painful reality that's a painful um that's the painful reality and it's the same thing peter is saying that he becomes a stumbling block because he's literally god's only way it's either jesus or you you try to get it yourself good luck with that 
right? And says they were they they are being dis um, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. Now some people say, ah, they were appointed to be disobedient to the word. I I think just simple rules of grammar would help you, right? It says they stumble, being comma being disobedient to the word comma to which they were appointed. So what was the appointment to? Was it to be disobedient or to stumble? I only hear your thoughts. Were they appointed to disobey, or were they appointed to stumble? You can put it in the chat. Yes, the appointment is qualifying the stumbling. It's the same way I say. Um, I don't know. The sun, which rises once a day, has died. <laughs> I don't know. Or the sun, who or Daniel, who is the son of this? Who is the son of Daniel's dad? Has has slept. It's not my dad that slept. Daniel slept. But there's it's it's called uh, we call it adjectival. Is it adjectival clause? Abi, <laughs> adjectival clause. Anyways, um, so it says they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. So the idea is simple. Why do they stumble? Because they disobey the word. The word now talking about the message of the gospel. And they've been appointed to stumble, meaning anyone who is disobedient to the word of God or who rejects Christ will stumble. Why is it an appointment? Because God has made Christ the only way. And so anyone who doesn't choose Christ will stumble. Does that make sense? It's it's, it's just common, um, it's the common flow of events. It's like I say, if you don't do, I don't know, if you don't, what, what should I, what should I say? If you don't read for this exam, you will fail. That's literally the only way. And it says, they failed, have you not read to which they were appointed, right? Yes, it goes back to foreknowledge and predestination, but not about the person now. It's about the, the idea in which Christ has become the only way through which the 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 through which God is going to reckon with humanity, pretty much. So anyone outside Christ has been predestined to this. Anyone in Christ has been predestined to this. Right. So it's it's the same idea. I hope that makes sense. Thumbs up if that makes sense. We're going to round up now. Does that make sense? All right, all right, all right, all right. Should I go over it again? <laughs> Does it make sense? Okay, 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 okay. I'll take that as a yes. Let's go on. It says, verse 9. You are a chosen generation. <laughs> but you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. I know who God says I am. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And this is one of the places where but is, is another amazing um, word. I said that therefore and but are some of my best words in the epistles. So it says that yes, for some, they've rejected Christ and they're going to stumble, right? It's 
it's that's that's destiny that's predestination right there and says but you you people that have received christ you are a chosen generation a what a royal priesthood a holy nation and we're going to look at that now his own special people his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his own marvelous light. Again, no surprises. Peter is not just talking from his head. He's quoting the Old Testament. One of the things you're going to see is we really have, we've diminished the Old Testament for what it's worth. And it's not fair. Because like I've always said, whenever any of these apostles are teaching, whenever they are reading, all that is informing their theology is that they've simply seen Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And Everything we're reading is based out of that understanding. So for you to look at the other and say, ah, what is Genesis to Malachi? I don't, you, are, you are missing out on a lot. You're missing out on a lot. So for instance, where is Peter saying all of this from? Exodus 19 verse 5. Let's go there. Exodus 19 verse 5. I mean, we can start from verse 3. It says, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Remember, we in Christ, we've obeyed the truth of the Spirit of God. It says, then you shall be a special treasure. Do you see that? To me, above all the people, for all the earth is mine. Verse 6, and you shall be to me what? a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So when Peter is saying everything, he's not just, he's not just sitting down and saying, what should I write that will sound nice, that they will use it to compose song 2,000 years from now. No, he's reflecting. He's reflecting on Israel. And now that in Christ, like Paul would say in Romans 11, we've been grafted in, right? Those who didn't believe have been caught up and we've been grafted in as Gentiles. It's still the same Israel of God. But now, of, co- of course, the Israel, the seed was in Christ. And that's what we're going to... I can't wait for Romans, honestly. I, I really can't. But we, we, we see the idea where Paul would say that he was speaking to the Jews and, and they're like, oh... Um, what do you mean now that uh, Gentiles, does that mean it doesn't matter if you're Israelite or that? And Paul, what does Paul say? It says that Abraham had many descendants and God said in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That not all of Israel are of Israel. And what was Abraham simply saying? What was Paul saying? Abraham had many children, right? Abraham is the father of the promise. So you would assume that everyone in Abraham's lineage is going to inherit the promise. And he says, no, that's not how it worked. God said, it was Isaac, that there was a, a thread going. And now you can trace that thread into Christ. And so the same way the, the, the children of promise were those in Isaac, we can keep tracing it down. And now we see that the children of the promise are those in Christ, are those in Christ. And so we can, we can in, in that sense, run through that same thread. So when you're reading what God says to Israel, that, oh, you are a holy nation. You are my people. We see the fulfillment that, yes, the true Israel are those who are in Christ. 
are those who are cast. That's why he can use the same words that you are what chosen. You are chosen in Christ, right? You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. We've literally just looked at that a few verses ahead, right? That we've been made priests to offer sacrifices unto God. We are royalty in the sense in which we we've been made to sit with Christ far above all things. It says we are a holy nation. Going back to what he talked about in the last verse, that we are a people marked by holiness. In identity, we are holy. And even in conduct, we are holy. He now says his own special people. His own special people, right? Or what, what um, the King James would call a peculiar people. And the word there, I, I don't know if peculiar means the same thing that it meant in the Greek, because peculiar for me, it's like weird. <laughs> you're a peculiar people. You're a very peculiar person. <laughs> I don't see that as a positive thing. It's like you're a weird person. But the, the NKD says it's special people. The Greek is actually the word. Can I pronounce it? <laughs> I will not pronounce it. Or should I try? Peri nah. P-E-R-I-P-O-E. P-E-R-I-P-O-I-E-S-I-S. Now you can see why I can't pronounce it. It simply just means um, to purchase something to make something your own. That's literally what it means. So when it says we are his special people, it means that we are the people that God has purchased for himself. So you can see he's putting together everything he has said since chapter one right now, till now. Talking about the priesthood in chapter two, talking about the holy nation in chapter one, talking about being purchased, with not with silver and gold but with the blood of christ in chapter one he's putting all of that together so we are his purchased possession right and it says why for what is the goal of all of this that we may proclaim and i love that word is the word exangelo in the greek it it literally means to celebrate to publish it's it's it it denotes a strong outward expression like, it must be clear, we must be proclaiming the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It says, we're once not a people, but now we are the people of God and we've obtained mercy. Again, he's quoting the Old Testament. That's all he's doing in this portion. He's quoting Hosea, Hosea 2 verse 23. He says, I would sow her for myself in the earth and I'll have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy, and I would say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Hosea 2 verse 23. Romans 9 quotes this verse as well. It's the same idea. We were once enstrained. We were once not a people, but now God has purchased us, and everything has changed. And we spend the rest of our lives, both now and in the world to come, simply proclaiming the praises. And like I said, whether that's in worship, whether that's in good works, whether that's in loving one another. Our lives have simply just become um, a channel through which God's glory is seen. It's amazing. I Sometimes I'm like, it's it's easy to to detach. Like, it's sometimes um, you might not be able to see how that can fit into your day-to-day. I wake up at 10, I'm going to work and all of that. But make sure you spend time thinking about that that you literally become God's purchased possession. Through you, the goodness of God is always on display. Always. Always on display. And people are like, ah, there's something about you. Like, yeah, ah, do you know what has happened to me? Do you know what God has done? Right? And it says, beloved, 
Finally, and we're going to round up now. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, again, the same idea, right? Abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. So the same idea, beloved, meaning those that are loved of God, of course. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. The same thing says during our stay on the earth. So who is a sojourner? Who is a pilgrim? Someone who is journeying through somewhere. KJV calls it strangers and pilgrims. Strangers and pilgrims. Making it very clear that this is not our home. This is just bus stop. This is not our home. And there's that mentality. Whenever Peter goes on to talk about the hope that is to come, he then comes back to eternity and to, to our present day and says, make sure you have that mindset. That as you go around your day, and as in the US is not our home, <laughs> make sure you, you live. And it's, it, again, it can be easy. That's why I said be sober, gird up your mind because the world will want to pull your rapper <laughs> or, or make you drunk. But always, always, in times of devotion, in times of meditation, in times of prayers, gird up your loins and remind yourself that this world is not my home. I'm not trying to labor to gain a, um, to be, um, to labor for things that perish. My life, my priorities can't be centered around just what I see. This world is not my home. There is a way that mentality should so be ingrained in your mind that automatically your priorities reflect that. Your words reflect that. You don't just talk about, oh, I will do this, do this, lay up treasure, and say, lay up treasures are like the, the foolish man, right? And there is much more in eternity. It will show in your priorities. It will show in even how things get to you, right? This world is not our home. We are literally just passing by. This world is not my own. I am just passing by. <laughs> we are literally passers-by. <clears throat> That's who we are. That's who we are. And it says, as a result, abstain from fleshly lust, which walk against the soul. I love that choice of words because there are many times in our Christian life that it does feel as though we are fighting. <laughs> we are fighting war. Because the, the world just wants to, it, it's, it's crazy. There are times I'm, I'm like, God, just come because I do enjoy this fighting, right? It says there are fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. There is always that temptation to place your worth in money. There is always that temptation to, 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 um, to chase after pleasure. There is always that temptation to, it's always there and with media with with people that aren't saved the pressure is always going to keep coming live for pleasure just do what makes you happy um why can't you go ahead and relax a little um all of that it says they war against our souls and that's why we pray we're literally in a fight these things war against our souls and I, i'm glad he used that choice of words so that you know it's not passive it's not it's not, uh, no, the world has an agenda, and I, by that I mean spiritually now, to make sure more and more you are drunk, more and more you give in to the desires of the flesh and all of that. Um, and the best way to, to stand firm is to first of all remember that we are simply passing by. Finally, last verse, it says, having your conduct 
honorable among the Gentiles, meaning that they would see you and say, indeed, you are a good person. Whether or not they like your God or your Jesus, they would say, at least you are. And I'm sure a lot of us can relate. Like even people that might not be Christian and be like, oh, there's just something about you. Oh, you are such a kind person. Or they know, like I said, that you would even see um, historically, people would want to live in Christian neighborhoods because at least you know that there won't be stealing, there won't be theft, there won't be murder, there won't be late night party because they would live, they are good neighbors to have around. They are kind. If you want to go out, they would watch over your garden for you if you ask them. Stuff like that, right? Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That when they speak against you as evildoers, which they do, they've always done, they will always do. It's not, it's not even just since the day of Christ, since it says it's... <laughs> Yes, yes, it was written. But the idea there is whenever you see, these are people that are living in that. Remember the very first verse, right? People that are in Pontus, in Galatia, in Cappadocia. So they lived amongst Gentiles. Whether they were Jewish or Gentile Christians, they were living primarily among Gentiles um, because they were in Gentile nations. The people is writing to annoy in Jerusalem, right? So it says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you, as evildoers, which they've always done. This, this Noah was probably considered a madman. Um, they've spoken against so many, right? It says, but they may by your good works, which they observed. I highlighted that in my Bible, actually. That word, which they observe. Um, I think it's Pastor Aaron that said, I can't remember how he said it, that, but I don't know if it was Pastor that actually came up with the quote, but the idea that if you think everyone is watching you, you are, is it, I don't know, but sure, you are deluded, you are proud, whatever. But if you also think no one is watching you, you're also wrong, right? There's a, there's a balance right there that people are watching. Maybe the world is not obsessed with you. Don't, don't worry. It's, they, they have other things to worry about. But people are watching. As a believer, remember, unbelievers are watching. It's always funny how, <laughs> tell me I'm not serious. It's always funny how once a Christian messes up, oh my goodness. You, that's when you know that this verse is true that indeed people are observing people are observing because they know that whether it's hypocritical or not they do know that the Christian has lived by a higher standard and so there is a sense of condemnation where already just by your life <laughs> just by the way you live you are making them feel you are making people feel in quotes not good enough you might not intend to do it you might not be hypocritical about it but there is a sense in which, oh, uh, why don't you live with your girlfriend? Oh, I, 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 I don't believe that um, God's plan for sex exists outside my life. Ah, you've come again and all that. And so there's this. So I like this verse because it points many things. That number one, that you should live honorably, whether or not they care or they say whatever. But that first of all, it says when they speak against you. <laughs> So there are things you would do that, yes, they might even like, right? Everybody likes a nice person or a kind person. But there are also things in Christianity that would be so incompatible with their ideologies. We see it in today's world, right? Every time a Christian, no matter how loved, speaks and says, I don't believe, um, I believe that God is the author of sexuality and sex. And this is more than just homosexuality, every form of sexual expression. It's restricted to a man and a woman in the confines of marriage. Everyone comes at you. If you like, be, a, be the nicest person. If you like, last year, you won man of the year, you gave your wealth to the poor. No one cares, right? But it says, when they speak against you, that by their good works, which they observe, 
So there is a sense in which, yes, they might not agree with certain Christian standards, but they do know that you are kind. They do know that you are gentle or you're loving or you're generous. They, they can see it. And what will then be the result? It's unfortunate it has to be this late, but it says they will glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, um, as I start to round up, I, I'm doing Like I said, this is the last verse. I'm done. But theologians would say that this means one of two things, right? When we talk about the day of visitation, all through scripture, usually it means um, when God, when God, in quote, visits his people, either for reward or grace or for judgment. So in a sense, um, you'd see Jesus saying that, oh, that woe to you, these cities, because you did not know the time of your visitation. I'm talking about when Christ was sent to them and the gospel was literally standing before them in the flesh. But there's also a sense in which um, the, the, the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is called the Lord's Day or the Day of Visitation, where it will be good for those that are, again, like we've said, that are living stones. But it would be a time of stumbling for those who have rejected the chief cornerstone. So I lean more towards the fact that this is talking about when God comes in judgment. And it would then be clear that the Christians had it right all along. And even unbelievers won't be able to con won't be able to say anything because indeed, by the way you lived on earth, they would know that yes, what you did was was um you were always honorable in conduct. So that's that's where I want to end. Any questions, first of all, before I if you have any questions, raise up your hand, then I would predict on speaker so it's be on the recording. But any questions before I <clears throat> pray and round up. Any questions? Yeah. Okay. Okay. If you're typing, you could also just let me know you're typing so that I'm about to pray. All right. So if there are no questions, I think it's it's a pretty fairly clear. Um, it's not it's not one of the harder portions of text we've done, but there are, there are a lot of gems. There are a lot of things to meditate, rejoice, um, really reflect on in all this portion. So much, so much from the hope and the glory and the joy to how it teaches us to live soberly. Again, going back into, oh, desire the milk and then going to the high that we are living stones. We are priests. We are chosen by God in Christ as his own people. The same we said, Israel is my firstborn. And it's that same idea that God literally called out Israel. Called out Israel. And that, that's literally the meaning of ecclesia, right? Called out the church. When we say the ecclesia, it's to ek out of um, Clitos, to call. We've been called out, right? And that's the idea. We are pilgrims on this earth, guys. Um, and let it inform the way you live. You live your life always for the glory of God. It's like, man, God is so good. I've become his, his masterpiece, right? Where his workmanship. And I told you that that's like a, a masterpiece. If I, if I say, oh, what's your man? What's your masterpiece? God points. What's God's masterpiece? The man in Christ. The man in Christ. Um, amen. All right. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for all we've reflected on. Thank you for the, the, the truths and, and all that you've made us in you. 
indeed it will take us all of eternity to to fully grasp and to fully appreciate what we've been called to in you and i just pray for everyone here that even in a on a, on a daily daily basis we're able to remind ourselves who we are as a result of what you've done i pray that we're able to live every day in your goodness i pray that even as we we go about our lives in in family in relationships in career in business whatever it may be that we're able to always bear in mind that indeed we are sojourners and pilgrims on this earth just trying to call people along to join us on this journey and i pray that our lives like you said in verse 9 that we would indeed show forth the praises of you who called us out of darkness into your marvelous light thank you for such a privilege for in jesus name we pray amen amen and amen Thank you.